Hey, Sully. So it, it's really cool to uh, uh, down with you one on one. There's a lot about the kind of work that you're doing that I really want to highlight. I think um, it would be o- oversimplified to try to box it into the vein of um, human rights. Um, so I'm sure that there's probably a lot of um, flavor that you can add to uh, people's understanding, uh, just kind of like on a on a base level. And there's still some political terms that may not be available to me just yet. But but my understanding um, is that your work is heavily focused on um, the Uyghur genocide that's taking place in, in China. And uh, your entity, I believe, is called East Turkestan Government in Exile, which is headquartered in Washington, D.C. Um, so what, what I think uh, we could do is maybe just kind of give a, a brief introduction of your your background and what has led up to this uh, this point for you personally and professionally. Um, and, and then I'm really looking forward to having this conversation with you and learning more. Yes. Um, I was born in East Turkestan, or what China calls the so-called Xinjiang Uyghur Autonomous Region. Uh, Xinjiang meaning in the Chinese language, the colony or the new territory. And I'll get back into, you know, as we go on the conversation, I'll focus a little bit more on the history. Uh, I came to the United States uh, in 2000 as uh, political refugees uh, with my uh, family um, at a very young age. Uh, and I grew up in Oklahoma. Um, and essentially, uh, when I came to the United States, I mean, the first thing that was, you know, that I still can't forget is when I, we got off at Dallas Airport, uh, <clears throat> Dallas Fort Worth Airport, um, I didn't notice, you know, any, you know, military presence. And for me, that was a bit strange because growing up in East Turkestan, there's a constant, you know, military present because of the uh, the uh, Chinese occupation. Mm-hmm. So uh, that was like the very first strange thing for me. And I asked my father, you know, where are the soldiers? Oh, <laughs> and he said, he said, it's free here. You know, there's no need for you to be afraid. There's no soldiers here. You, you'll rarely see them. And uh, upon that, my father, you know, I didn't know much about East Turkestan, our history. I knew that we were different. I knew that the Chinese government, you know, was, uh, you know, suppressing our people, but I didn't know much beyond that. And my father, as soon as we got back to our apartment in Oklahoma City, he sat us all down and he stated, you know, I brought you guys here, not so that you can forget, you know, where you come from and not so that you can forget your language, your culture, your identity, but so you can become educated here. And one day return to help your country. Mm. And he said, that's your your goal here is to get education and to do what we could not do. And essentially, he pretty much thought us about our history, the fact that we were an occupied country and that, uh, you know, the Chinese government had been colonizing and, uh, uh, you know, engaging in uh, various, you know, atrocities against our people over the past, you know, at that time. Uh, this is in 2000, so almost uh, 50 uh, years, mm-hmm. uh, just just over 50 years. It was actually 51 years. Um, and I grew up in Oklahoma. My brother and I, you know, we partially because of my father, he wanted us to have a military career. So okay. um, I tried to, you know, uh, become a military officer. Uh, I, I did ROTC. I joined the uh, Oklahoma Army National Guard. But because of a kidney issue, I, that after two years, it, you know, my military career pretty much ended. And so instead, I decided to study, you know, politics and um, international studies uh, in hopes of, you know, helping my people in the future. Um, then around 2017, uh, by the summer of 2017, right after I finished, you know, my uh, undergraduate degree, um, this is when China began to really lock up, you know, Uyghurs and other Turkic peoples in concentration camps. This is when China's so-called uh, strike hard campaign or uh, the people's war, as, as the Chinese government calls it, uh, against the Uyghurs, you know, 
it started in 2014, but 2017 is when the world, you know, when it began to impact Uyghurs across, you know, all across the world, even in the United States. And that was the last summer that I was able to speak to anyone in East Turkestan. And I remember calling my grandfather and he had told me, you know, don't call me anymore. I'm too old and too sick to go to school. School is, you know, the, the code word for the concentration camps, which the Chinese government calls the re-education camps or vocational training camps. Mm-hmm. And with that, uh, I folk, you know, I tried reaching out to various Uyghur organizations that we had uh, supported in our community. And I said, hey, we need to, you know, highlight this. We need to, you know, push Congress, we need to push the U.S. government to act on this before it's too late because things are about to get really bad. And uh, unfortunately, we had some, you know, disagreements. So because of those disagreements, I uh, founded the uh, East Turkestan National Awakening Movement with Mm -hmm. like-minded, you know, young Uyghurs who grew up here in the uh, United States. And our emphasis was not just to focus on the human rights aspect, but also on political rights because that is the basis of why we are you know facing these atrocities is the fact that we have no political rights and when you don't have a political uh, you know when you don't have a say in what you know what type of policies are going to be made regarding your future then there's no way you can guarantee your human rights sure. so with that we started uh, you know pushing for a Uyghur policy act and essentially uh, after months of demonstrating every day, Monday through Friday, in front of the uh, U.S. Capitol, meeting with uh, officials, we were able to, you know, convince Congress to introduce the Uyghur Policy Act in the uh, summer of uh, 2018. Mm. Um, after that, uh, I began to speak out more on, on East Turkestan and what was happening. Uh, our organization, Etnam, uh, we were the first, you know, organization to reveal the coordinates of China's concentration camps and prisons across East Turkestan. Um, and our estimate of 3 million was later echoed by the, uh, the uh, Department of Defense uh, a year later. And seeing that our government in exile, which had been formed in uh, Washington, D.C. in 2004, uh, they asked me to, you know, uh, you know, essentially, be, uh, they initially asked me to represent them, you know, here in the United States, uh, to be their ambassador in the United States. And uh, I accepted that because we had similar uh, ideologies or similar goals. Uh, at NAM, we advocate uh, for the restoration of East Turkestan's independence as a secular, pluralistic uh, republic that guarantees uh, human rights and freedom for all. Um and with that, uh, I initially was the uh, uh, ambassador for about six months before um, I was nominated to be the prime minister of our government in exile after I gained a little bit of a popularity uh, amongst our global diaspora. And in December, uh, uh, in November 11th, uh, 2019, at uh, the East Turkestan government in exile, Eighth Parliamentary uh, General Assembly, I was uh, elected as the Prime Minister of the uh, East Turkestan government in exile. Mm, this is fascinating, and I, I maybe just before we kind of get into um, the focus of your work, what is the function of a government in exile, or like what? Why was that a necessary instrument for you to provide a political voice to your people in East Turkestan? Just just for people that may not understand some of these uh, instruments that are available? Uh, so a government in exile essentially is a government uh, that, uh, you know, does not exercise any uh, control in a territory due to uh, foreign invasion or occupation, but uh, claims to represent those people's interests and, uh, you know, is not um, the existing government and the ground is not existed is not uh, viewed as a legitimate government by the peoples of those uh, territories. So in East Turkestan, uh, our government, our independent republic was overthrown on December 22nd, 1949. Uh, this was months after our initial top leaders of our government at the time, our president, 
defense minister, interior minister, foreign minister, and other senior officials uh, were invited to a meeting in Moscow uh, in August of 1949, and then their plane crashed and they all died. And shortly afterwards, uh, the Chinese, the Soviets assisted the uh, newly established People's Republic of China to invade and occupy East Turkestan. Um, and our government, some of our, you know, the, the junior leaders that still re- existed, many tried to flee uh, beyond, you know, outside, but were unsuccessful. Um, and it wasn't until the 1960s when the Soviet Union and China's relationship began to deteriorate that the Soviets like opened their borders, allowing uh, many of our people, including many former officials of the East Turkestan Republic, to flee into the Soviet Union. Uh, there, they tried to set up a government in exile, but the Soviet Union was not willing to host a government in exile. No. Uh, it wasn't until 1992, after the fall of the Soviet Union, that we actually had the creation of the East Turkestan National Congress to advocate, you know, for our people's rights and for the restoration of East Turkestan's independence. Mm-hmm. But by 98, uh, the Turkish government was not, uh, due to Chinese pressure, was not willing to continue hosting the uh, National Congress. So in 2004, after, you know, searching for other, you know, alternatives, you know, another uh, country that is willing to host us and at least allow us to carry out our, uh, you know, advocacy efforts, uh, we, our predecessors found, you know, some uh, people that were willing here in the United States, and we officially established the uh, East Turkestan government in exile in uh, 2004 in Washington, D.C. Okay, that's incredible to kind of understand the history. And as like a a government in exile, you know, headquartered in Washington, D.C., does that mean that you are able to like not only interact with institutions that can serve your objectives in D.C., but also in other parts of the world? Yes, uh, essentially, I mean, uh, because Washington, D.C., we we have a saying that uh, global policy, uh, you know, uh, what's going to happen in the world is largely shaped, uh, you know, in in Washington, at least in in, among the Uyghurs. So Washington, D.C. is very important. Uh, America is, you know, a very important, uh, you know, country in in terms of uh, global politics. And uh, uh, but at the same time, uh, America is has been the only one that has been really willing to, you know, speak out uh, on on our issues over the past few decades. So uh, naturally, uh, America, Washington was the most um, crucial, you know, uh, place for us to be. And so the the current issue, um, and I think some people see some of these things occasionally in the headlines, and I don't, I don't think the coverage does th- this issue we're discussing today justice, or, or is it frequent enough? But, but the current issue is that uh, the Chinese government is not acknowledging the existence of uh, claims to territory uh, in this area that we're going to call East Turkestan. Is that correct? Yes. Uh, the, the Chinese government, uh, since 1954, after they took over East Turkestan and established the uh, XPCC or the Xinjiang Production and Construction Corps, which is a uh, three, three and a half million strong paramilitary force set up specifically to colonize East Turkestan um, in 1954. Since then, they have a they have always you know claimed that East Turkestan or Xinjiang as they call it has been a part of China since ancient times despite no you know historical basis. Mm-hmm. Uh, East Turkestan you know for thousands of years uh, and even you know according to uh, genetic uh, research and archaeological research has been the homeland of Uyghurs uh, and other Turkic peoples for over six thousand years. Mm-hmm. It wasn't until 1759 that East Turkestan's independence was, uh, uh, you know, the East Turkestan began to lose its independence. In 1759, you had the Manchu Qing dynasty invade East Turkestan and uh, essentially set it up as like a colony, but not like a direct colony, uh, more like uh, how uh, the East British East India Company, you know, 
uh, ruled over India uh, th during the British Empire era. Mm -hmm. um, during 1759 and 1863, the people of East Turkestan rebelled 42 times, you know, uh, 42 mm -hmm. large-scale rebellions against the Qing uh, Empire and declared independence in 1865 as the state of East Turkestan or Kashkaria. Mm -hmm. um, but it was at this time, you know, there's the great game, uh, which is the great power competition between the Russian Empire and the British Empire for influence in Central Asia. East Turkestan had been serving as like a buffer between these two uh, empires. Um, after the Russians invaded the uh, Ili Valley in northwest East Turkestan, the British, you know, they were, at the time, they feared that the Russians would move further south and occupy all of East Turkestan, thus, you know, putting uh, the British Empire at the borders of the Russian Empire. So they, in turn, through the Hong Kong uh, Shanghai Banking Corporation, financed uh, the uh, Manchu Qing Dynasty's uh, conquest of East Turkestan in 1877. Mm -hmm. And after, you know, uh, several years of war, almost eight years of war, the Manchu Qing Dynasty uh, was able to formally uh, occupy East Turkestan. And it was the first time on November 18th, 80, 1884, that they started using the name, renaming East Turkestan as Xinjiang, meaning the colony or what is now known, what was now, the, at the original time, it meant the colony. Now it's, the more accepted term is the new territory. And during this period, um, you, you had, you know, the rise of nationalism and anti-colonial movements across. And so sure. East Turkestan experienced this as well. Uh, and in the 1930s, we had a national uh, uh, independence movement, liberation movement, which resulted in uh, our first attempt uh, in successfully declaring independence as the East Turkestan Republic in November 12, 1933. But unfortunately, the Soviets, uh, they intervened, fearing that this, you know, revolution liberation movement would spread into West Turkestan, which is the present day Central Asian republics. And so they, after roughly about six months, they crushed our, uh, and overthrew our government. Mm. Then you had about a brief decade in which East Turkestan was governed by a Chinese warlord who was initially aligned with the Soviet Union, uh, who engaged in, you know, very similar policies that we see today happening in East Turkestan. Uh, Chinese, you know, colonization, mass internment at the time over 200,000 people uh, of over which historians estimate that at least 100,000 plus people were killed. Uh, and our intellectuals, our, you know, religious scholars, leaders, anyone that uh, was voiced, you know, uh, um, opposition to the Chinese occupation, they were all purged. Then, uh, towards the end of the night, uh, towards the beginning of the 1940s, the Chinese warlord began to align himself with the uh, the KMT or the Republic of China, the Nationalist uh, Party in, uh, in the ROC, and expelled all the uh, Soviet advisors. And Stalin decided, okay, well, maybe this time we'll we'll support the East Turkestan National Movement, and uh, so with the Soviet support the Uyghur, Kazakh, Kyrgyz, and other Turkic peoples rebelled once more against uh, uh, China, Chinese occupation, and declared independence again on November 12, 1944, um, uh, as the East Turkestan Republic. Unfortunately, because of you know great power politics, East Turkestan's future was essentially sold out by the Soviet Union uh, after China recognized the independence of outer Mongolia, the Soviets uh, cut their support. Uh, however, our government continued to maintain, uh, you know, assert its independence. And it wasn't until, uh, you know, December, uh, until uh, August of 1949, when, you know, initially our, our, our leaders thought, oh, maybe Soviets are wanting to work again with us, but they were lured to their deaths. And then the Soviets, you know, assisted the Chinese in taking over East Turkestan leading to the uh, present uh, situation. Jeez, it's so interesting to hear um, the history. And so 
how many like if we were just talking geography for a moment like how many people are in the east turkestan region roughly so this in itself is very uh um controversial uh, as there is no you know really accepted census for example the chinese government uh puts the current uh, population of east turkestan at 25 million with about 12 million uyghurs Uh, and about you know four million other uh, ethnically Turkic peoples, and then about ten million Chinese uh, Chinese colonists. Mm-hmm. Uh, however, if you go back in 1949, or if you go back prior to 1949, and you look at historical population data, uh, you had you know estimates of you know, even early as the 1920s, estimating that East Turkestan's population at that time was about 10 to 15 million. Uh, in the 1940s. You had, you know, uh, estimates of around 10 million. Mao himself, after they took over East Turkestan, stated that there were nine million uh, Turkic peoples uh, living in East Turkestan uh, in, in as of uh, December of 1949. Mm-hmm. Uh, the Chinese government uh, since has been downplaying the population of Uyghurs, and so we don't know the true population of East Turkestan. But if we look at, you know, just Uh, you know the average growth rate. Uh, you know, compare it with the historical, you know, records. Uh, we estimate there's at least 35 to 40 million uh, Turkic peoples in East Turkestan today. Okay, mm. and so when we when we look at the current conditions of the region, again for people who may not have a full understanding, like what do we understand about the current conditions and, and like? You know, and then also, like, what has the U.S. government done, or what could um, other governments or people around the world do to, you know, support intervention or improve conditions? You know, however you would normally kind of answer this question. So uh, since 1949, uh, China has been, you know, colonizing East Turkestan. The Chinese population. At the time of uh, East Turkestan's occupation in late December uh, of 1949, was 179,000, and that was mostly the Chinese troops who invaded. Uh, not even, you know, a few percent of East Turkestan's population at the time. Today, uh, you know, estimates range from you know 10 million officially, what the Chinese government says, to you know upwards of 15 million if you include the you know the Uh, the Bingtuan, like the XPCC uh, paramilitary forces and other, you know, Chinese government uh, forces in East Turkestan. Uh, the Chinese government over the past decades has, you know, the people of East Turkestan has been resisting, you know, occupation. We had numerous uh, rebellions and uprisings. The last uh, uprising, you know, armed uprising we had was in uh, April 5th, 1990. So on Tuesday, it'll be the 32nd anniversary. This was shortly after, you know, the end. Of, uh, the Soviets were defeated in Afghanistan. So you had some Uyghurs who, you know, seeing the defeat of the Soviet Union, they're like, if we rise up, maybe the world will support us. They will, you know, rush to our aid. And so our people, you know, rose up. Initially, it started off as a peaceful demonstration, uh, and the Chinese government brutally suppressed it. And this gave, you know, uh, uh, you know, the opportunity for. Uh, Uyghurs, some of the Uyghurs to, you know, convince our people now is the time to rise up because whether we, uh, you know, try to peacefully ask for, our you know, what we want or whether we, you know, uh, try to, you know, rebel, the Chinese government will respond the same way. And for us, you know, we have to regain our independence if we are going to ensure our people's survival. So... Sure. The, barn, the barn uprising was brutally crushed after seven days. Unfortunately, there was no support from the international community. According to uh, Global Security uh, Org, which is like a, a, a think tank that you know uh, specializes in, in uh, uh, security issues, they estimated about 1,600 uh, Chinese security forces and uh, Uyghurs were killed. The Chinese government uh, in the Baran uprising. The Chinese government, after they crushed it, uh, announced that they arrested 7,900 uh, so-called separatists, um, and this is this was the last incident. 
even in the 90s with the independence of the Central Asian Republics, this again gave hope for our people that we could become independent too, uh, leading to uh, you know larger uh, political uh, independence movement that you know spread out into Central Asia. Uh, and initially, the Central Asian Republics were you know somewhat supportive of it, or were at least you know tacitly uh, supporting it to the point where they weren't you know objecting against it until China set up the Shanghai Cooperation Organization specifically. Uh, to prevent East Turkestan's independence in 1996. Uh, then you had 9-11 happening. And ironically, two weeks before 9-11, the Chinese Communist Party secretary in East Turkestan at that time, Wang Luchen, uh, he had held a press conference inviting foreign journalists in an attempt to secure foreign investment in East Turkestan. And he stated that, you know, when one of the questions of the journalist was, is there any violence? Is there any conflict? Uh, we hear that the Uyghurs are, you know, not happy with the Chinese government, etc. And he said, no, there's never been any conflict here. Everyone is, is living happily. Uh, there's no, you know, no violence whatsoever. Then 9-11 happened and immediately China, you know, took this to its advantage and said, oh, we are victims of so-called, you know, East Turkestani terrorism. Um, and in September, in November 11th, uh, 2001, the Chinese government stood before the UN Security Council uh, and listed, you know, dozens of non-existent East Turkestani organizations. Some of them were existent, but majority of them we had never previously heard about and stated that, you know, they were fighting against terrorism and that the uh, they fabricated the so-called East Turkestan Islamic movement, uh, which you won't find any record of that ever being mentioned, not even by the Chinese government prior to that date. Okay. And it convinced the world that, you know, Uyghurs are, you know, Islamists, that they're terrorists, etc. Um, and unfortunately, in 2002 uh, you, and 2004, you had, you know, the UN Security Council designate only the ETIM as a terrorist organization, and China spun this narrative inside East Turkestan, saying that the international community has declared the East Turkestan independence movement. See, see where how the type of game they're playing, you know, replacing independence with Islamic, mm-hmm. and saying that the world views us as terrorists. Mm-hmm. And that's when they started, you know, uh, shortly afterwards, they started, you know, implementing the so-called uh, bilingual program, but which is essentially monolingual you know, preventing our children from learning our own language in schools. And then you had the 2009 Urumqi massacre, which started off as a result of, you know, Uyghur who had been forced to work in Chinese factories being um, assaulted, you know, in a Chinese factory inside uh, uh, Guangdong province uh, based on some, you know, rumor. And we had, you know, dozens of Uyghurs being killed and this was video was uploaded on YouTube and this is why YouTube is banned in China is because specifically of this incident and this led many Uyghurs young students uh, in East Turkestan to organize a peaceful demonstration carrying the Chinese flag demanding you know an inquiry and demanding justice and again the Chinese government brutally suppressed this um, and you know Tens of thousands of young Uyghurs were, you know, just disappeared and the Chinese government shut down the, uh, you know, Internet, blocked off everything for an entire nine months. And then by 2013, with the rise of Xi Jinping and his, you know, Belt and Road Initiative and more importantly, his, you know, Chinese national rejuvenation attempt or, or goal, which he clearly stated by 2035, you know, China is going to be has is going to have achieved national rejuvenation. It's going to become a Chinese specific state, meaning that it's they're trying to create a homogeneous Chinese identity, um, and where if they if they need to, they need to I- I- either eradicate or assimilate the non-Chinese populations by 2035. And shortly right after that, that's when China began, you know when it officially started this mass internment campaign uh, in which they called the people's war against violent terrorism, extremism, and separatism. Uh, 
over here the euphemisms for example separatism means uyghurs rights to any type uyghurs you know struggle for any type of self-determination mm-hmm. uh extremism means you know if if you are a pious muslim you or if you had even grown a beard for example uh these the, the beard that you have or even what i have right here would be illegal in East Pakistan and is one of the reasons for us to be sent to these uh concentration camps mm-hmm. and uh, terrorism means any type of resistance against chinese occupation of East Pakistan and that okay. this doesn't mean violent resistance any either way for example the chinese government calls me a terrorist just because i you know advocate for East Pakistan's independence Mm. uh and so starting in 2014 they initially targeted the young males between the ages of 15 and 45 saying that they were the you know prone to become radicalized and the international community failed to you know you know speak out against this in fact you know at the time the even the US government had stated oh we support you know China's uh you know counterterrorism efforts then by 2016 the Chinese began to hunt down Uyghurs all across the world in the Middle East and Central Asia uh in you know Turkey even in Europe even here in the United States forcing you know Uyghurs to come back by detaining their uh, relatives in East Turkestan saying that if you come back we will release them and many of them fell for this trap and they have you know disappeared into these camps nor have their relatives been released um and this is when you know by 2017 you know news began to come out about this as we began to speak out um and the US government as well under the Trump administration in the uh, summer of 2018 they uh, they publicly spoke out against this um i think it was vice president uh who was the first person to speak out at uh, at this and over the years uh as more and more information uh, you know was being revealed um you know leaked documents and uh you know satellite imagery analysis and you know testimonies of some people who were lucky to get out and all these people had dual citizenships or their um husbands or uh were you know there all these people that were able to flee were women uh were you know citizens of other countries and so they were able to get out because of that and so they described what was happening the chinese government you know denied this uh then the US you know department of defense you know because they have all the capabilities to view what's actually happening they uh you know publicly came out and called it a concentration camps in uh, may of 2019 and we pushed you know congress uh, the US government to recognize that it as genocide and it was only in uh, the last uh, the last few days of the uh, Trump administration that secretary uh, Pompeo uh came out and uh, officially designated as a genocide and this has you know since continued to the present administration and various governments uh across you know parliaments in Europe have also officially recognized it but not much has done, been done beyond that uh mm. we have you know initiated uh, a, a a complaint a formal complaint urging the ICC or the International Criminal Court to investigate Chinese officials for genocide and other crimes against humanity but uh, unfortunately no government has you know come out to actually say hey we 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 second this call or hey you know the uh the ICC needs to you know investigate uh Chinese officials unlike what they did for you know Ukraine on the issue of Ukraine you had hundreds or you know at least dozens of countries you know urging the ICC to investigate Russia mhm do why do you why do you think this is like why like even just hearing how much history has led up to this moment and how long it's been since um East Turkestan has been acknowledged uh by China or had its uh, independence why do you think uh many governments around the globe are slow to step in or to say anything is this like a product of um like the, like Chinese ascendance like what what do you think is the the issue that I mean like like in my mind like if i think about these different uh administrations in washington and the way they express uh their politics and so forth it's mind-boggling to me 
to imagine that uh, Pompeo or anybody in the uh, government here in the United States would wait till late 2020, basically, to acknowledge that uh, China is actively engaging in genocide. So, you know, obviously there was lots of press coverage. Like you said, there's there's tons of history here on the table when we think about the the plight of uh, the people in this region. But why do you think it's like these big, powerful institutions are slow to say something or to get involved? I think there's two main issues uh, regarding this. One is uh, just political weakness, lack of, you know, uh, you know, strong leadership or lack of vision or uh, I think this is one of the biggest issues. The second is uh, economic, uh, you know, uh, ties with China, uh, reliance on Chinese goods uh, or Chinese business. Uh, in fact, you know, uh, in 1980s, when the United States and China, you know, resumed relations and uh, the West started, you know, pouring uh, hundreds of billions of dollars of investments into China, they had this, you know, misconception that, oh, if we slowly, you know, do business with China, China will become more, you know, China will democratize, China will become like us slowly. Mm -hmm. uh, however, the reality has shown that it's the complete opposite thing happened. We are becoming more and more like China. Mm -hmm. um, and this is because of economics. And many, you know, companies, corporations, and even, you know, politicians, you know, uh, unfortunately, some of them have, you know, a lot of investment uh, in China or in, in, you know, certain companies that operate in China. So uh, because of their, you know, uh, short term uh, business interests, they are ultimately their own future, uh, you know, sovereignty and security. Um, every bit of money that we pour into China, you know, that China is taking, you know, a certain percentage of that pump it into their military to pump it into their, you know, uh, uh, political uh, force uh, and ultimately creating this monster, uh, you know, that it is today. And we are contributing to China becoming a bigger and more larger threat, not just to, you know, East Turkestan, because East Turkestan, we're just a buffer. We, we're, we're a buffer preventing China from expanding further west into Central Asia, into the Middle East. Now that they have, you know, been getting away with genocide, you see them, you know, expanding, you know, politically and economically into the Middle East. Uh, the Belt and Road Initiative, many people think that it's, you know, just purely an economic thing. No, it's not. There's a much, you know, shadier part of this. You know, China create, claims that it's peaceful, but uh, it's, you know, preparing. The Chinese are very patient, so they're pumping in trillions of dollars into investments into, you know, Central Asia, South Asia, uh, the Middle East, and even parts of Africa in the form of neo-imperialism and neo-colonialism, mm -hmm. uh, settling in hundreds of thousands of Chinese, you know, workers to build these infrastructure product projects while there are, you know, hundreds of thousands of able people in those countries that can do the same projects, mm -hmm. you know, uh, probably at a much cheaper rate. Mm -hmm. But again, it's about projecting, you know, Chinese power. And this is what they did initially with East Turkestan. When they took over East Turkestan in 1949, they said, oh, we're, we're going to help you initially. They're like, oh, yeah, they signed the secret, you know, the remaining leaders of the East Turkestan Republic. They apparently signed like a secret treaty in which the PLA, the Chinese communists would, you know, help us develop and modernize East Turkestan for the first three to five years and push out against, you know, the imperialists, whatever those were. Uh, but that didn't happen. Uh, instead, the first few years, yeah, the Chinese, you know, they, they, they built roads, they did that, but all those roads, all every infrastructure, it was not for our benefit. It was purely a strategic move for them to, you know, move in more Chinese colonists into East Turkestan. Uh, even today, right now, like, for example, they're building a lot of airports, dual-use military airports across East Turkestan, you know, on the borders of India, borders of Afghanistan, Kazakhstan, uh, Kyrgyzstan. Um, and it's not just about the Uyghurs. 
they're going to use this in the future if they continue to do this because you still have some Chinese, you know, hardcore nationalists within the Chinese government who are stating that, oh, we need to reclaim Chinese, you know, greatness. Uh, we have lost territories to Russia. We have lost territories to Kazakhstan, to Kyrgyzstan, uh, to India, to XYZ. You see them, you know, expanding, you know, in, in the Indo-Pacific, uh, in the East uh, Asia. Um, this is all preparations for something, you know, much bigger. Um, and they're just waiting out their time, you know, slowly preparing themselves to a point where they are unchallenged, both politically, economically, and militarily. Mm. How do you think um, the the ascendance of uh, China's economy and politics is like shaping the geopolitical landscape or like changing decision-making in Washington? Do you have any opinions on that? For example, uh, you know, what the Trump administration was, uh, you know, what they initiated was actually what needed to happen decades ago. Mm -hmm. Um, And it needed to happen more. What you see, how the U.S. reacted to uh, Russia's invasion of Ukraine, uh, how American, not just politicians, but businesses, you know, cutting all economic ties with Russia. The same thing needs to happen here in East Turkestan, not just because of what's happening, you know, in East Turkestan. Yes, the U.S. has a treaty obligation to prevent and punish the crime of genocide, but also to prevent the future, you know, expansion of China because China is not like the Soviet Union or not like any other power that you that the U.S. has faced before. It's a much more, you know, it's a much more, you know, they're they're very tricky. Uh, you know, they're very patient. Uh, they have essentially infiltrated all walks of society, whether it's co- corporations, mm-hmm. even governments, intelligence agencies. Uh, you know, through using their economic, you know, through mainly through economics. You know, mm-hmm. you pumping in a lot of money, buying off of people, buying off you know countries. Uh, so. This needs to, you know, the U.S. needs to step up before it's too late because we we have a small, especially in the case of East Turkestan, China has a goal by 2035 to achieve complete national rejuvenation. Mm. And this is the whole point of why they're locking up millions of Uyghurs in camps. You know, Uyghurs are dying in these camps. They're being, you know, subjected to sterilization. They're being tortured, gang raped. Their organs are being harvested. There are, you know... There's while the mainstream media has not reported this as much, there are, you know, satellite imagery of crematorias and other things being built across East Turkestan. Uh, And this is, you know, reminiscence of what the Nazis did during the Holocaust. Mm -hmm. Uh, So for us, especially, we have a very small window. If we if we don't become free in the next decade, you know, we we are completely gone. And if East Turkestan falls, as I said earlier, we are the gateway preventing China, you know, from expanding further west. Mm-hmm. If we fall, then Central Asia, Middle East, South Asia, they will all fall too. And the political weakness of some leaders or the lack of strategy of some politicians or people here in Washington, whether it's at think tanks or others, uh, you know, you have to look at it from a realist perspective. You know, this is not like as, as much as we like constructionism, constructivism and you know neoliberalism the idea that we can work with china and not you know uh be you know at at odds with each other is is unrealistic the reality does not show that reality shows the past experience over the past five decades since the west has you know opened up to china shows that china is just rising and the west is declining day by day And that's the aim of China is to, by 2049, to become the sole political, economic and military power in the world. Mm. And when we think of uh, China, too, and um, when we think of uh, autocracy, some would say that uh, China sets the bar for authoritarianism around the globe and um, also has the most advanced means of uh, uh, technological and physical repression like uh, built into their 
government apparatus. And so when we look at um, what's happening to your people in East Turkestan, uh, we're also talking about, like you said, legitimate military occupation, which if I heard you correctly, has expanded to what might be 3 million or more soldiers. So they, they have the uh, three and a half million uh, Bing Tuan, the paramilitary, uh, you know, force called the Bing Tuan, which occupies, their sole goal is to occupy East Turkestan, to colonize it and prevent, you know, internal uh, rebellions. Uh, in addition to that, you have, you know, upwards of 200,000 PLA forces, uh, some 600,000 or so people's armed police forces. And according to uh, some uh, French uh, journalists and others, they, they estimate that one third of the Chinese uh, colonists uh, and the Chinese forces in East Turkestan work for the various government apparatuses. Mm. And the Chinese justification for... Uh, military forces to uh, uh, prevent, uh, in in their minds, is to prevent uh, an uprising of a terrorist force, and then also to push for this, uh, I guess, homogeneity or what we could say, assimilation. So, so, so this is how the Chinese government is justifying what really is um, atrocious acts. Um, I don't think there's a standard on earth that wouldn't see this as um, very atrocious acts. Um, And so some of the ways that these government signal is implied, but you're saying like this 2035 initiative outwardly expresses uh, this intent for, is it, is it, is it, is the language like one people, one China? Yeah. Yeah. The the Chinese nation. So, um, they want to create loyal Chinese nations to where everyone is Chinese. This is the term that they, they use. And this is why in these camps, in these concentration camps, they're forcing, you know, Uyghurs to denounce their ethnic religious identity, to even take Chinese names, forcing them to, you know, learn Chinese. They took over 850,000 children, you know, from their families, sent them to state run orphanages, to become loyal Chinese citizens. And, you know, they're dressing up Uyghur women in traditional, you know, Han Chinese clothing that even you don't find, you know, Han Chinese people wearing nowadays, only if it's like, you know, if they're actors, you know, for a movie or something. This is the type of thing that they are doing in East Turkestan. Um, and this is not just towards the, the people of East Turkestan as well. They're doing this, you know, to the Tibetans, to the Mongolians, uh, to, you know, all the non-Chinese peoples in the territories and countries that the PRC empire occupies. Mm. So unbelievable. Cause I, I think like, uh, if nationalism is a political ideology, then, you know, fascism is the actual implementation of the autocratic structure. And so, you know, people explore, the dangers of uh, of nationalism or the way that national identity can be weaponized and, um, in, you know, marginalize um, m- various uh, forms of uh, minority groups. And so I, I think what what we're what we're what we're seeing just kind of as you and I are discussing this and some of the context I have um, is like how. uh how ugly a nationalist uh, ideology can be when it has the uh, will and the power of a, like a governmental structure behind it in the, in the modern era. And, but, but, but you're saying one of the issues is that we're not just um, looking at uh, these atrocities in East Turkestan and, and against other uh, people's, um, that fit outside of this kind of center of Chinese culture. But you're saying like uh, what you're seeing is uh, setting the stage to to kind of expand or or increase the presence of this Chinese nationalist thinking, even potentially on other continents or in other regions. So to get this, 
the origin of this actually goes back to 1920s. Uh, what China is doing right now, you know, is initially this blueprint for this was set up in, in the 1920s by uh, Sun Yat-sen, the American educated, you know, Chinese leader who essentially led to found the Republic of China or Nationalist China back in the uh, 1920s. In a book called The International Development of China, written in English in 1921, he pretty much lays down the foundation for the need for why China needs to colonize and occupy East Turkestan and Mongolia, mm -hmm. stating that, you know, it's okay for us to do this because, you know, you had Europeans doing this in other parts for their development. Uh, we need to do this the same thing. And he stated that within a decade, his agenda was that within a decade, he wanted to send 10 million Chinese to East Turkestan and Mongolia. And if necessary, you know, uh, you know, just eradicate the native populations. Uh, because it's it's okay, the West did it, so for China to do it, it's, it's okay. But more, if you go further into the book, he has this very disturbing idea that's not just between, this is not just exclusive to East Turkestan or Mongolia. We're just, just the, the tip of it. We're just the, the starting point. He says, in the end, there will only be two races, the yellow race mastered by the Chinese and the white race by the Anglo-Saxons. Mm. Jeez, and this was written so, in the 20s? Yeah, and this, you can find it, like, if, if you look at the internet, you know, archive.org, you can find this book. This is the type of, you know, mentality that uh, he had. And, and China at that time was not strong enough to obviously go through with such, you know, a strategy. But under, you know, the Chinese Communist Party, under the Xi Jinping, to where China has achieved a certain level of, power uh both economically politically and militarily to where it thinks that the world cannot this is when it started off with the uyghurs being you know we're the primary uh you know the main target because we're the biggest headache for them and so essentially you know it, it pretty much tested the world it's testing the world right now the resolve of the world if the world is not going to stop again you know to act against this genocide then what's, you know, in a few decades, the more that China, you know, uh, is able to buy more economic and politi uh, political and military influence, mm. it can just, you know, take the entire world. <laughs> you know, Xi Jinping uh, in 2013, he said, you know, we will achieve the Chinese national, uh, the Chinese dream by 2030, uh, 2045, uh, at 2049. And he states, that, you know, the world will speak Chinese. And oh, wow. I don't think I don't think he was saying that just figuratively. Mm -mm. There's you know more more to that. This is you have you see the soft power of you know Confucius Institutes expanding to all parts of the world, including here in the United States. You see you know neo-colonialism already happening in you know Africa in parts of you know South Asia and, and Central Asia where China's like oh we, we're helping you develop and modernize your country. They're just setting the stage for a much bigger and more evil plan uh in, in the future mm. Jeez. yeah it's a lot to think about i um yeah i just want to take a moment i know um like i i studied politics for fun i probably have uh different reasons than uh what may, what prompted you to study politics to the extent in which I um, have a preference for making sure that I like know what my rights are and are like always aware of like what instruments or uh, outlets are available to me for legitimate political dissent. And I, I think like uh, like our ability here in the States is taken for granted in many ways because um, I can go to Washington and, you know, I, I can say what I need to say, right? There's there's some limits to that, but I don't have to support the government, even though, you know, I do and I'm proud to be an American citizen. But it's so challenging when, uh, you know, the way that capital flows between governments or between corporations and, and the way that, um, like, domestic interests impact uh, how politicians think about uh, other nations and all of these things uh, get intertwined. And then, you know, 
again, like uh, there's lots of atrocity in the history of America and in Western expansion. And so sometimes I even wonder like, uh, is the, is the, is she and the Chinese communist parties espouse beliefs in response to the existence of us hegemony or, or is it just, a uh, in, in, is it just a people, um, that may be equally as grandiose as Americans have been for the last 70 some years? Well, so wants- the, so in, in the Chinese mindset, you have this, you know, uh, mentality you know deep rooted deeply rooted in them of like national humiliation or the century of national humiliation Mm -hmm. where they feel that they have been you know humiliated and abused or uh undermined by you know western imperialist quote um and they all the chinese you know even starting in the 1920s they, they said that you know they need to you know rejuvenate they need to you know come up against this national rejuvenation and re- recreate the great Chinese nation. And so this is what all this is about. It's it's not just specifically, you know, oh, the U.S. is a threat. No, the U.S. is just the biggest threat preventing China from achieving its grandiose dream. That's that's mm-hmm. what it is. Okay. Um, you know, the entire world, whether it's Europe, whether it's other countries, they're all, you know, a, a threat to China's interest in, you know, in, in this goal, in this, to this goal. Um, but the U S is like one of the biggest, biggest threats, you know, East Turkestan internal, you know, not, not internally, but like the most closest threat, you know, to China is East Turkestan. Then beyond its, you know, borders, you have, you know, the, the United States, which is uh, currently holding, you know, the role of the, uh, the, the global superpower, uh, you know, uh, which, title that which china wants um and which you know xi jinping believes that if they continue this way they will get it by 2049 well i i hope in i hope in the least um because i mean i feel completely powerless hearing um the story but i hope in the least that um at some point like the proper level of intervention takes place or or that it just makes sense um, for the East Turkestan region to be acknowledged. It's not like we don't have room for more states or more uh, autonomy for people to um, express themselves, protect their culture, their heritage, uh, their political and religious beliefs, social institutions. It's not, it's not like we're lacking space on the planet for that to continue or for that to occur. Um Sally, is what what's the best way for people to find you to start following your content or and and, and are there um any uh new efforts you're working on that that you want to let everyone know about before we wrap up? Yes. Uh any uh people can follow me on you know social media at Sully Hudayar. Um, you know, they can visit our website east-turkestan.net uh, to learn more about you know the history of East Turkestan and what's going on and uh, what our aims are. Uh, some of the current things that we're, we're, we're working on right now is one to, you know, uh, the United States government uh, recognizes uh, Tibet as an occupied country. Uh, mm-hmm. We are trying to push for similar, you know, recognition. Uh, you know, we if the U.S. can't do much, you know, at least treat us on par with Tibet, you know, recognize us as an occupied country like Tibet. Many Americans don't know this, including many politicians, the fact that, you know, before the Chinese communists invaded East Turkestan, the U.S. had a consulate in East Turkestan. Mm-hmm. Um, the first CIA officer to die in the line of duty was killed, you know, while he was evading uh, Chinese communist occupation of East Turkestan. Um, furthermore, you know, if you look at historical maps produced by, you know, the United States government, it clearly states it as East Turkestan, not as Xinjiang or whatever. And if you look at other Western maps from, you know, prior to the 1940s, uh, 1949, uh, you know, all of it states East Turkestan, majority of them. Um, So we want them to revert back to, you know, the, you know, to the original position, recognize East Turkestan as an occupied country, you know, raise our issue at the uh, UN, you know, Security Council 
you know, help us, you know, give us a little bit of recognition in the same way that, you know, they have given the Tibetan government in exile, you know, uh, help us to uh, empower, you know, our, 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 our democracy and our institutions here, you know, out in the diaspora. Um, ultimately, you know, there, you know, like the United States needs to pursue the same type of strategy that it pursued in terms of, you know, uh, resolving the Soviet threat. Mm-hmm. It worked. And the same thing can, you know, be uh, done with, with China. I mean, China, there's a lot of problems that China has. It's just, does the United States have the willpower to, you know, I don't want to say exploit, but in a realist, you know, strategy, uh, realistic perspective and uh, realist political strategy, the United States needs to, you know, work with, you know, the, the oppressed peoples like East Turkestanis, Tibetans and others to put pressure on China uh, at, at all types of levels. So this is something that they need to do. Okay. Well, I'm uh, very glad to have this discussion with you. And uh, as things progress, I hope to have you on uh, my platform again. So thank you so much for thank joining you, us.